truth of the matter was, stories was everything, and everything was stories. Everybody told stories. It was a way of saying who they were in the world. It was their understanding of themselves. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I felt guilty about working this job because of exploiting people's pain. We had a call, and this was, uh, I guess, in downtown Chattanooga, or pretty close by, and then there was a report of uh, somebody riding around with a shotgun. You know, you got to do your job and make sure you don't get distracted by what's going on and not get the story. And so we went to the vicinity. We saw the car. We uh, attempted to pull him over. He sped away, and we followed him. He pulled into his mother's yard to stay out of the shot, watch the cameraman, and just be a shadow. He threw out uh, a bag of drugs. The money was flying everywhere. And his mother came out. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. Make sure you have audio to match the pictures, which is not easy when you don't know what to expect and uh, there's danger everywhere. And the cops and the crew basically were filming this and also helped apprehend this guy at the same time. It's one thing to see something on TV because you, you, you take TV for granted as being safe. But he had a loaded shotgun, sawed-off shotgun in the car. And he was apprehended and arrested, and I think that was the first major story. It's all real, and uh, there's no staging. It's it's true reality. This is Tommy Cotter, and in 2001, I was given a call to help the cops. TV crew in Chattanooga. There was no one in Chattanooga at that time that uh, they could find. And then, um, somehow they found me. I wasn't like enamored with the show, but sometimes it would be on and I'd, I'd be drawn in like a, a moth to a flame. You're going to be under arrest hey, hey, hey. for breaking into your wife's house. I had experience doing commercials, maybe a little documentary work as a sound location mixer. So I was quite adept at studio work and gear and stuff. I was self-employed. I couldn't have turned it down. I had to have it. I had a a new son that was just about six years old. So I was like thrilled because I knew this being a network show, the pay was going to be good. I gave them a call. They gave me a call. I think it was two ways. I think we had a few words exchanged. Pretty much, we need you. Let's do this. Uh, You've got enough experience. We'll train you. Anybody that does this particular job has to be trained because there's really nothing like it, or there wasn't at the time. There's a lot of spinoff shows since. They sort of give you a a lecture. It's like, okay, here's the equipment we use. This is what you do. This is the bulletproof vest. Here's a waiver you sign in case you get killed. We're not responsible. I had to wear all black bulletproof vest every day. You can't wear a seatbelt. So already your life's in danger. It's one of the experiences that changed my life, quite literally. The company is set up to go to a particular city 
for two months. They have three teams of a cameraman and a sound man that ride with uh, different cars, and they always pick beats and shifts that are most likely to get into really heavy stuff. In this case, it's East Chattanooga. Of course, just like any other city, we've got our problems ridding uh, this city of some of its uh, criminal element, uh, and that's what keeps me going from day to day. Yes, I remember my first day on the job, absolutely. We went to this house, and there was suspected burglary. And so the first time I went in there, I was shaking so much. What's going to happen? Does this guy have a gun? Is he going to kill us? You know, it's like I was over, over nervous about it. Turned out there was nobody there, and, uh, you know, nobody had broken in. It was a false alarm, basically. But that first night was a, a good lesson to relax. What you've got to do is you have to concentrate on your job. You can't think and dwell about danger. There would be nights where absolutely nothing happened, and then there would be nights with maybe two or three things would happen. It's a crapshoot. A lot of times there were instances that were just plain funny, funny, funny. But we got a call to go to a house, disorderly conduct or something, and uh, approached this house and knocked. Nobody answered, and then a woman uh, yelled out the the window from upstairs, Hang on, i got to put my leg on. I'll be down a minute, y'all. I don't know why I thought that was funny. It's not funny that she didn't have a leg. It's just funny that she said it that way, I guess. I am an international clown. I am world-renowned. We did a prostitution sting, undercover cop, dressed up like a clown, and we got him in, in like an ice cream truck. Rent Bobo the Clown for your party. I should make you a dog out of balloons. <laughs> that won't work. That won't probably work. make me handcuffs out of balloons, too, can't you? This truck pulls into <laughs> a, a known area where prostitutes frequent and picks up hooker after hooker after hooker. And there's a hidden camera in the car. It's rigged for sound and camera. Coco is not a clown. He's a police officer. Everything you said was recorded and videotaped. The clown says, hey, baby, you know, offers her money, and she takes the money, and then we bust her and film it. I'm Coco the Clown. I got a balloon for you. The only reason I came down here was because of my parents. And I had a barrier Friday, so... You had to bury your yeah. parents? That is nothing to tell a clown. Well, I'm sorry. But it was kind of uh, sad, too, because you're... Again, you're seeing women uh, uh, suffering and, and having to do things that most of them don't want to do. The words out there, don't get in a car with a clown. So we're going to have to come up with something different next time. It was a good job today. Oh, everybody's a Coco the Clown fan. And sometimes, you know, it's like either funny or not funny or painful or dangerous or all of the above at once. One thing that was scary and there was a reason to be scared, is uh, in Chattanooga, the worst area of Chattanooga. This pretty much was called Fox. We spotted somebody looking suspicious, and the officer pulled over and said, let's check this out. Four guys, one appeared to have a gun, and he ran. So the officer went after him, the cameraman went after him and said, you stay here and watch these three guys. They were jacked against a wall, facing a wall with their hands up. All I had was a boom pole and a microphone. I'm not a cop, and I'm guarding these three guys by myself. And I thought, if they don't come back, these guys could turn around and kill me because they don't know I'm not a cop because we look like cops, but we're not. So I had to wait there like 15 minutes by myself watching these guys. And I didn't know if these guys had guns. I hadn't been frisked or anything. The cameraman, the cop was gone. I'm by myself. And I had to say, y'all just uh, don't move. Don't move. And I just kept saying, don't move. Any of them could have uh, beat me up and killed me because they were all, you know, bigger than I was and... and and they were living in an area where they had to deal with that on a day-to-day basis, unlike me, who was lucky enough to grow up in a 
peaceful, happy, you know, environment. And they didn't say a word. They didn't move. And I'm grateful. Guys, thank you. The crew chose a an officer to ride with. They always looked for someone that was really good at what they did, that always seeked out trouble, more or less. So that way they knew they had somebody that was brave, maybe crazy enough to, to make a story. You want to develop a rapport with the officer right away, and usually the cameraman is sort of in charge of making the officer comfortable and letting him know that, you know, we're not here to do anything but basically show what your job's like, show people that you're human and that what you're facing, you know, we're going to basically show you in a good light. The common misconception people have about police is that we're not human beings. They automatically look at the uniform and, and, and automatically think that you don't have feelings or respect for them. Um, some people have had uh, bad dealings with police. There's a security about riding with police that comes naturally to, to most of us, and you feel a little secure. Well, you got a policeman, uh, you know, in, in charge, and you feel protected. I'll tell you something that was always dangerous. There were situations where we had to chase people at 100 miles an hour in dark neighborhoods with no lights, running stop signs after a suspect with no seat belts. And I thought, I'm going to die. We're all going to die. We're just going to wreck because we were trying to make a story and he's trying to catch this guy and this guy is, is running like a fool and they're going to get him. And why do these people run? And that happened probably once a week at least in these high-speed chases at 3 o'clock in the morning. And that was so scary. So that was always dangerous. One of the cops' crew had his knees blown out with a shotgun by accident by a cop. And one of the cops in Chattanooga, Julie Jacks, that we rode with in Chattanooga was murdered about a year after we rode with her. The one thing that did happen is uh, I was trying to get out of the car once, and the cop changed his mind and got in the car, started the car, and took off. But my foot was under the back tire, and it ripped my boot in half. And it didn't, I didn't get hurt, but it ripped my shoe in half. I had to put duct tape on my shoe for the rest of the night to uh, continue the job. You work two months, you go home two months, you go to another city, work two months, you come home two months, you go to another city, work two months, come home two months, and then you're off for a, a month and a half or so for Christmas vacation, and then it starts all over. The pay was great. You know, they set you up with a, a place to live. You get per diem, plus your pay, car to drive, free meals every day. It took a couple of months, a couple of weeks to realize that I indeed was not in the most comfortable place in the world, but I would have to adapt to it the best I could, and I, and I did the best I could, but it was not something I could do forever, and I knew that pretty quickly. If someone was new, they would make it or not make it within a few weeks. I think I was on the verge because um, I was not an ex-Marine. I was not uh, a, a jogging person. You really had to run fast, and I could never run as fast as a cameraman, even though he was dragging a big, heavy video camera and the cops. These guys had been doing it for years, and so they, they always gave me a hard time. It's like, you better run faster. There were a couple of times I just I couldn't. I tried, but I could not run fast enough. Well, there was just one time we went and chased a suspect that was selling uh, pot in a, in, a, in, a, in a project area. And uh, this is probably the, the experience that was the most condemning for me from the team. Is like they had run like a half mile 
chasing this guy. And uh, I could feel that my heart was going to give out or something. I just I tried, but I could not keep up with them. I missed a p- bit of audio, so they were really pissed at me. And they're saying, if this happens again, you're out. You should have been there. You should have stayed with us. Why didn't you, you know, I just couldn't keep up. And so I made sure it didn't happen again. A lot of these guys started out, and they had to keep working, so it changed them. Uh, most of them ended up divorced because they were on the road all the time. Almost all of them became jaded by society because they saw the dark side all the time, and there's no break from that, you know? You can't be around negative things all the time without it affecting you. Well, I think there were some that started out that were, you know, fairly typical people that didn't have biases, that developed biases. They go into a certain ethnic neighborhood and develop a bias because all they saw was the dark side. They didn't see the other side of of the culture and uh, whatever culture that was, whether it's white trash or African-American or Indian American, Native American or whatever. If you're exposed to bad people that are committing crimes so often, it's not something you can uh, easily protect yourself from. It is quite possible to be politically correct and to be transformed by bad experiences. Oh well, it's another victim, it's another victim, so what? They just became callous. There's a better word for it, callous. When's the last time you had drugs? I had some Sunday because it was my birthday. Oh, you had some... Like all human beings, there are good and bad characteristics. There are great cops that gave me such an admiration and understanding and that I was so proud to know that they were the kind of people that wore the badge. And then there were people that were, I felt, mentally unstable, violent, and and really enjoyed um, hurting people and and fighting, enjoyed it to a point where it was kind of sick, sadistic. Well, you know what? Take this as a belated happy birthday. Happy birthday. Stay here, put it in the back of the car, please. One of them was so busy bragging about himself that he ran over a cat in the middle of the road, killed the cat, and just laughed about it. And that just, I just wanted to kill him. I, I said, you son of a bitch, in my mind. I couldn't say a word. I wanted to strangle him. And he was just the worst of what you could have for a cop. Big, bad, blue stripe boy. You blue stripe boy. You, you, you know Joe for nothing. The main thing that bothered me is when we would be working on a suspect and there were so many varieties, but a man in Fort Worth was pulled over, and he had just come out of uh, an area where there was a known drug house, so we were staking it out, and we want, we've stopped him. He had a, a six-year-old boy in the back of his seat. He just copped some heroin, and he was but shoot up, and so they had to arrest him, and the, and the boy was crying, and I was thinking about my boy at home, and I just, it was all I could do to hold back tears. I could not stand to see people suffering, innocent people, children. That got to me and never got better. That part never got better. But I, I, I hung in there, and I hid that because if you expose your weakness, the crew will pick on you. Be tough or, or you're out. You know, it's this kind of macho kind of attitude. And I think that comes with being in that environment. It taught me in a way that there was no other way to learn it unless I was in the military in a war or I was a victim of a, being a prisoner or tortured or kidnapped, something, you know, intense. And this was not that any of those things, but it was a, a glimpse. And it was enough to make me aware that people are going through this, and I can't shut it out. I can't shut it out. Being called to a, a, a motel 
and a wife reported that she had just been beaten up. And so we went looking for this guy and looking and looking and looking. We found him hiding in the kudzu and uh, finally put him in jail. But um, it just reminded me that, you know, this is uh, intense. And then there is an example of pain, you know. It's like, in a way, I felt involved in some fashion. You may not be responsible for some of the actions, but you're, you are actually part of what's going on. And you, uh, if it's something dangerous, and that's part of it too. They make money on it. They make lots of money on it. I don't know if it'll ever end because people are so fascinated by other people suffering. What am I doing? I'm just going home. I'm just going home. Put your other hand behind your back. I wasn't doing anything. Put your other hand behind your back. And that shows you uh, one trait humans have. They want to see how other people handle uh, situations, especially when they are in bad ones. I would think it's a flaw. Instead of being compassionate and sickened by suffering, uh, people seem to have an appetite for it. Media especially exploits that, and cops is simply doing what the media does. If it's legal and, uh, and society doesn't fix the problems, can you blame anybody? Can you blame anybody but, but ourselves? I don't think so. It took me a year to figure out that I just need to go home and do something else because I'm not going to be away from my kids and family. I can't do that because it's not going to help the family. It's bad for the family. That was my main decision. The other thing was I don't want to get killed or jaded. And if I stay around, there's a chance that I become messed up from from doing it too long. And our environment will slowly, slowly shape who we are, whether we like it or not. So it's very important that all of us protect our environment to fit what we truly believe. That's a big lesson I learned from it, huge lesson. I don't care who you are. That's going to affect you and change you, and uh, the same with the crew. And uh, I think it, it, it affects me to this day still and on a subconscious level. makes me suspicious of, uh, of strangers that I don't know uh, subconsciously because I've always been open and gregarious and trusting person uh, to a fault in, in many ways. But after this experience, uh, I still have my guard up. Until I really feel like I know or sense somebody, where they're coming from, uh, I don't trust them the same way I used to. I think about that little boy and that that heroin addict. Uh, I still think about that. And they're still running all of the years from the first till till now. And, you know, my brother lives in England. He saw my name on some reruns over there. It's like, really? They're still running the old ones too? I mean, they got plenty of them. I'm grateful for the experience. Even though I feel pain from it, because I've, I know so much more about the truth of society than I, than I wanted to know, and I don't know that I would ever want to know what I know, but I do know it, and I can't turn it off. I just want to see society do more to keep, to keep people from suffering as much. And I just I feel a pain for society I never felt before. I want it to be a good thing, but it, it's, it's scary. You can't allow what's going on in the world to take your joy away, and you have to fight for your joy as an individual. And uh, yes, it's a scary world for everyone in some sense, but we have to claim our right to be happy, and we still, in spite of all the crazy stuff that goes on, in the end, we have to trust somebody, you know, or why are we here? 
No point in it, otherwise. 132 in Bush, I got him at gunpoint. Okay, gunpoint, 132 in Bush, coverage code 3. Everybody has their point where things get close to home. It's different for everyone, and there's no way you can guess what it is, but it's at the point where what you're looking at becomes something that you can directly relate to. For one of my uh, colleagues, it was going to a suicide for a young woman who had killed herself, who was about the same age as his wife, who was pregnant, and that was really difficult for him. For me, it was going to a, a traffic accident late one night. One car, a uh, young girl had been driving at top speed, drunk, being chased by the police, and she crashed into a boulder and then flipped the car three and a half times. Driving up to it, it was the same make and model as my sister's car, and the victim was the same age. And I hadn't seen the victim yet, so I had this moment where I'm just like, oh, God, this is my sister. This is my sister. And you know, obviously it wasn't. But in that moment, it suddenly became something that I had a direct relationship to. And while shooting it, you know, I have this moment where I'm shooting, I'm not sure what it was, some bit of debris on the ground. And I back up and some of this girl's hair, which had gotten torn off and lodged on the door, brushes my arm. Normally that would be maybe strange or a little gross or something, but for, it was just really, really difficult in that moment because I, I had had something that had kind of gotten past my defenses kind of past my sort of, I don't know, wall of separation from what I was doing. Like I can still kind of feel that sort of tingle in my arm from brushing against her hair. My name is... And I worked for just over a year as a crime scene specialist in a town in a southwestern state. My duties consisted of photographing crime scenes. We had a guy get killed in front of my favorite burrito place, pulling out of the drive-thru. That was a bummer. Photographing evidence, strange things like I'd get a car that was shot full of holes and filled with blood but no bodies. That happened multiple times. Fingerprinting and processing and photographing suspects. Everybody working in the adult industry had to have full fingerprints taken. So we fingerprinted a lot of strippers and a lot of bouncers. And it would be really surreal because they'd be flirting with us the whole time. And I'd be like, oh, excuse me, ma'am, could you take your breasts off my arm? If you're a police officer, you only saw the things that happened in your particular area. And so you'd only see what happened there and that happened during your shift. If you were a detective, you know, homicide detectives only saw homicides. Child abuse detectives only saw child abuse. Gang detectives only dealt with gang stuff. We went to everything. So we saw everything. For a lot of officers, they might go a year or more without ever having to deal with a dead body, whereas like in a normal week for us, we might have to deal with 10. It really was surprising how quickly you kind of became numb to things. 
To back it up, I started off uh, going to college and getting my degree in photography. I was working in a photo lab, and one of our customers was a crime scene specialist with the local police department. He brought in a flyer advertising a job opening, and I thought, you know, what the hell, I'd go ahead and apply for it. And I thought, you know, actually using photography as a tool for producing real evidence, actual evidence, would be an interesting experience. So I applied for it, and it was a long, kind of confusing process. Like, it began with a a written exam, basically entirely on photography. So it was asking questions about film types that had been obsolete already for 10 years. Things like, uh, it's 3 o'clock on a Sunday, it's autumn, cloudy outside, there's blood spatter all over the room, and there's bullet casings to the floor on your left. Your meter reads 400. What speech did you shoot your, your shot at? You know, I did that and I went on my way and I figured, okay, well, that, that test was ridiculous. I'm never going to hear from these people again. And a couple of weeks later, I did hear back and they sent me like a background check form to fill out. A lot of agencies, they want people with science backgrounds or like in the case of uh, New York City, they pull their uh, crime scene investigators from the police ranks. But where I was living, it was a civilian position. And their feeling on the matter was that they could teach the science. They didn't want to have to teach somebody photography. After the background check packet and then the initial interview, uh, they started calling basically everybody I knew and asking them questions about me, asking questions about you know, my background and my, my personal characteristics. After that was the mock crime scene photo shoot test with the oldest 35 millimeter camera rig that they could dig up. And I had one shot and one minute to shoot each thing. So it'd be like shooting shoe impressions, you know, with this giant potato masher, fully manual flash. But it would be things like uh, one of their vans with like a mannequin falling out the window or, you know, like a toy handgun kind of laid underneath a chair. So all these different scenarios that were pretty good examples of things I might have to deal with. I'd never needed to shoot a VIN number on a car before, but I had to do it in this case and figure out how to light it correctly and just hope that I'd guessed approximately how to do it and they showed me the photographs and they told me they weren't good enough i probably shouldn't say this but i found out later was another test to see how i'd react because apparently some people freak out when they're told that like you know these i'm sorry these photographs just aren't up to our standards like what do you mean i shot them perfectly fine what's wrong with you can't you see that and they're like okay thanks for coming in a few weeks later i got called in for the sort of final exam which was a trip to the morgue And this, I guess, is, in a lot of cases, kind of the the deal breaker for people, where you actually, they call you to the morgue, and the idea is that you're going to come in and you're going to photograph a body and fingerprint it. So I go to the the morgue, and I'm not really sure what to expect. Um, I've seen dead bodies before. I don't think I'm particularly squeamish. And I head in and meet the supervisor, and they wheel out a body, and it's, it's an elderly guy, and I'm not sure what's happened to him. Uh, I see that, you know, he's already been autopsied. So he's got the chest stitches and he's got his head up on a, um, like a little raising platform. And I can see there's some blood behind it. So there's an elderly guy with a mustache. I don't know anything about this guy. He's just laid out on a slab. And for some reason, I kind of focus on his feet. Like there's just something about this guy's like uncut toenails that just seemed like incredibly depressing to me. But I photograph him, I fingerprint him, 
And, you know, of course, the guy's been been dead for a few days, so in order to fingerprint him, I'm having to, like, reach my hand inside his hand and roll pieces of paper across his fingertips. And I think that's the whole point, is they want to see exactly what you're going to do when presented with the situation. A lot of people apparently don't even make it through the door. Like, they sit in their car, they freak out, and they leave. I go home. I'm tired, so I decided to take a nap. And I'm laying on my bed, and I'm just staring at my foot, being, like, struck by this, like, strange sort of sense of my own mortality. Seeing my foot and thinking about, like, the connection between my foot and then this old man whose name I never saw stuck on a slab in the morgue, having some weird kid taking his fingerprints and taking pictures of him. Did the autopsy? Yeah. Did the autopsy really scared? No, no, no. I didn't hear from them, I think, for another, I want to say, three weeks or so after that. And I just assumed, like, okay, well, I guess I didn't get the job. And I found out uh, later when they called me and asked me to come in and start training that I, I was the third hire. So they'd hired two people just before me. So I canceled grad school. I uh, figured this would be a great opportunity to kind of see a different aspect of photography. We started training. Um, I was issued my uniform. And... Training basically started with me on the job. First day on the job, my shift started at 6, and 20 minutes into walking in the door, we got a call, and it was for a suicide. I kind of had this moment of panic where I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I got this, like, flutter in my stomach where I'm like, you know, okay, it's one thing to go see somebody in this kind of stationary position in the morgue, and it's quite another thing to go take pictures of a guy who's killed himself in his garage. I head out with the supervisor who's training me, and I have this kind of moment where I'm leery, you know, before we walk in. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be sick. And then we walk into the garage, and this guy has shot himself with, I think, a 22. And it's fine. It's strange, but it's fine. I mean, you, know, you see horror movies and zombie flicks where the people have got green skin or purple skin, and you think, like, God, the makeup artist sucks. And then you discover, like, people actually turn really strange colors, and there doesn't really seem to be any rhyme or reason. This poor guy was, like, purple and yellow. Somehow, like, kind of gave it a level of detachment that made it easier to deal with. One of the things that I think is more surprising than anything else about a dead body is just that it's so obviously totally inert. It's so obviously just an object and not a thing. And it's this, this poor guy who's in his garage, his brother's in the kitchen answering questions, and all I have to do is take pictures and go on my way. The human body's amazing. Three years. My day started at 6 a.m., which I wasn't accustomed to, so like my whole eating schedule was off, and it seemed like every post-mortem was at like 8 o'clock in the morning or 9 in the morning. And my blood sugar would always crash when I was in training during the post-mortems, and I'd start to feel sick, but it was like all super macho. So like with the guy who was training me, I'd like pretend like I wasn't having this blood sugar crash because he would tease me about not having the stomach for it. And I was just like, no, no, I can handle it. I learned to start taking uh, granola bars and eating them before postmortems. You know, um, it's interesting because it's not a particularly small town. It's a medium-sized metropolitan area. But it became very small from having to travel back and forth across it. And even though it, it isn't a small town, 
even just living there in a normal sense, it becomes pretty small. And like you find that your social group overlaps with everybody. And that being said, like I uh, had a, a shootout on the front yard. It turned out of somebody that I'd gone to high school with and knew pretty well. You know, we knocked on the door just to get pictures of the bullet holes from inside. And he opened the door and he's like, oh, hi. I did have a call at my neighbor's place. And as soon as I saw the address, I, I didn't take it. I asked actually one of my partners to take it. But I, I rode along with him. Just It was my neighborhood and I wanted to see what was happening. Uh, my neighbor had committed suicide. And I didn't know him. But it was something that kind of lingered the, after the fact. So I had my name appears nowhere on the case record for this because I didn't do anything. And it would have been, you know, really inappropriate had I taken some of the photographs, had I processed the evidence. I was just strictly there as an observer. In the months following, when I, like the apartment lay empty and there were always candles on the doorsteps, I would have had no clue what was going on, if not for, you know, having been present for that. And it also kind of made me realize just how much history the places that we live have, because I'm sure that the people that live there now have got no idea that somebody committed suicide in the backyard. You know, it's not the kind of thing that you need to report to other people. Just traveling around town, you know what I mean? Like, I had to kind of, like, ignore the fact that you knew that this particular Circle K was like a hotbed for burglary. Just go in and pay for your gas and leave, you know? There were moments where things got funny, too, like... If things were really bad, we put booties on and we'd spray our boots down with bleach at the end of the day, but something gets stuck in your waffle tread and it falls out in your car and you don't know it and all of a sudden you're bringing your work home with you in a way that you'd really rather not. I tracked a little bit of human fat into my car once and I didn't realize it until the next day after it was 120 degrees and my car smelled like carrion. We picked up weird jargon that we would use it would just be probably impenetrable to, any, impenetrable to anybody else like uh, my favorite and I don't know where it comes from and I've tried to find out I don't know if it's something specific to us or if it's something that people use elsewhere and it's chunder basically chunder refers to miscellaneous human debris so you know assorted bits that weren't necessarily identifiable were chunder bodies burning but too much sloughing of the skin I had a train suicide, and it was when I was in training, and this poor person was everywhere, and the rails were hot, and it was the middle of the summer, and they were cooking. We kept making all these jokes about, and you have to do that, you have to make jokes, like the gallows humor is just out of control, you know, because it's just what you do, you know, it's not being disrespectful, like, we were always, like, as respectful as it was possible to be around family, around other people, but, you know, there's a point where you start making jokes about, like, Denny's menu items and replacing it with the word chunder. One of the problems with um, television is that it's given people unreasonable expectations. To this day, it's so frustrating for me to see any kind of like crime television because it is just so patently wrong. If it's a like a crime scene kind of a show or like the, it's like a forensic science sort of show they're always the first people on the scene and they're like kicking in doors with guns and i'm like no dude you're you're staying behind your microscope for the entire day like why are you there the science is 
almost always wrong. Like they're like, oh, I'm just going to go, uh, go run the DNA right now. And then like five minutes later, they come back. I've got a match. Fingerprints, DNA, blood spatter, like all these different things. And the simple reality is, is that most things like you're lucky if you get fingerprints. I don't think I need to remind you too that your fingerprints and your DNA are in our I might have some prints from my time, but I can't do anything with them because they're evidence. You know, they belong to this whole other sort of language, this whole other uh, requirement. You know, like I, I don't. It, it's interesting because like I'm a photographer by by trade outside of this, and a lot of the people that I worked with were also photographers in other capacities. Some of them shot weddings. Uh, one of them was a really well respected landscape photographer, but we're all working with this photography that we can't do anything with outside of our day job. You know, I had moments, like I'll be honest, I had moments where I shot things with an aesthetic eye, you know, intentionally. And like, those are some of the prints I have, but I was still doing my job and like, I can't do anything with it. Yeah. It's really strange doing something like that, that I, I have no access to that. I have like this entire body of work, so to speak, that I can't touch. It's impossible to do something that's that visual, and not have it kind of transfer over into your own personal work. And a lot of the work that I was doing, after I left the job when I started grad school was, I think, referencing a lot of the things that I would see as, as a crime scene specialist. Paper bags came into my work a lot. That was, there were these really surreal moments where, um, especially in gun shootings, but in most, in most suspicious deaths, so the decedent would have paper bags put over their hands and then taped shut. And the idea being is it would preserve any evidence that might be on their hands or underneath their fingernails. And that became this kind of like recurrent visual in a lot of the work that I was doing. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, but then I look back at what I was doing and I'm like, oh yeah, everything I'm doing here was kind of visually working out emotional points of contact for me in that position. The idea of sort of like physical remnants as being a way of kind of objectively telling a story. Since we saw so much, I think that there was always this kind of perception that there might be more of a toll on kind of our emotional state. We would get periodic visits from the mental health specialist that was on staff, and we would always send her on our way as quickly as possible because I think the best form of therapy for the things that we saw was just having lunch with everybody else in the, in the section. And, you know, we'd exchange stories. You know, as hard as it was and as glad on some levels as I am that I don't do it anymore... Because I, I've seen what it can do to somebody after like 30, 40 years. Like it's, it's hard. You, you take some of this home with you, even, even if you don't want to. And like, you know, by the time you reach retirement age, I mean, you've seen so many things that most people haven't. You see these things that people shouldn't see, or at least that people don't see in this country. I left at the end of a year, actually, because I was given the opportunity to go to graduate school. Otherwise, I'd probably still be doing it. And it's funny because actually having been away from the job for a number of years, there are things that affect me far more now on recollection than they ever did at the time. Two years after I had left, I uh, remembered this one situation where uh, kids were washing the car for their mom. They knocked the car out of park and one of the kids rolled under the tire. I never even saw the kid. I showed up and the paramedics had scooped him away. Like, I never saw it. I just photographed the car. You know, nothing nothing to see. And at the time, I was just like, oh, that's a bummer. 
few years later, I remember thinking about this and like crying in the middle of the street. It was being like, God, that's just so tragic. When you're in the process, like there's definitely a layer of protection that you create for yourself. And I think the further away you get from it, the more that erodes. I felt more job satisfaction from working in crime scene than anything else I've done in my life. Sexual assault, murder, abuse, things like that. Like that's serious. Like that's something that insurance isn't going to take care of. That's the kind of thing where it's like somebody has to live with that for the rest of their life. And I'm hoping, you know, with what I was doing at the time, I at least in some way maybe can mitigate some of that suffering for somebody else or maybe help them find some kind of closure through legal means or You know, in the case of somebody who has lost their life in terms of being able to kind of tell their story or, you know, help their families. Some of the lessons that I took away from this, I'm I'm never going to live in a house that's like a new house in a subdivision because I've learned that bullets go through the walls like they're paper. There are certain smells that trigger kind of memory associations now. And and the, the county morgue was this weird combination of meat, like a meat smell, like you'd smell in a meat market and this one particular type of cleaner. I don't know if it was like Fabuloso or like whatever the industrial equivalent is of that, but they use it in restaurants. So I'll go into a restaurant and smell it and it's just like, oh God. I don't know. I wish I, wish I had some, some closing thoughts like to give you like some grand life lesson that I came away with from this, both learning that the human body is far more fragile than I ever realized and that it's far more resilient than I knew it was capable of being, you know? Like, the, the things that would kill people versus the things that people would survive. Like, there's just no connection. And so, like, that I know what the inside of somebody's head looks like definitely kind of alters the way that you flow th- through the world. I didn't have this one, but I, I heard about it, and the pictures were actually beautiful that were taken where a guy had been found in the desert, and he was mummified. And they couldn't figure out who he was, so they actually ended up rehydrating his skin so they could get pictures of his tattoos. And, and, and the pictures are beautiful because they were shot with a ring flash. So it'd be this purple gloved hand holding a piece of skin with like an anchor tattoo. And there's just this beautiful lighting. It's making like the skin pop and like the purple from the glove pop. And I guess it was one of those weird moments where like it was difficult to kind of separate looking at things aesthetically like I'd been kind of trained to as far as like my schooling went to just looking at it from a legal standpoint or from a documentary standpoint. You've been listening to Everything is Stories, a podcast brought to you by Oscilloscope Laboratories. This episode was produced by Garrett Crow, Mike Martinez, and Tyler Ray. William Cody Watson provided the music for this episode. And if you want to hear more of his stuff, you can stop by our website, everythingisstories.com. William's catalog is deep and dark. His records have been a constant companion to me for over a decade now. He's definitely a must-listen. Over at the site, you can also find our other episodes, links to our newsletter and social accounts, as well as photos to complement the stories you just heard. Like, subscribe, tell your best friend. Everything helps us get the word out. Thanks for listening. And remember, nothing comes from nothing, and everything is stories. Whatever else Graham Greene does, he always tells you a story. Not his old introspective musing and grousing and 
chewing your liver. Uh-uh, let's get on with the story. Keep me up tonight with this story you're telling me. I want to turn the page. All I ever wanted to be and all I think of myself as being is a storyteller. That's all. I just tell stories. <laughs>